I can't stand horror movies. And movies like The Exorcist are the absolute worst. Growing up in the church in the 80s, in Texas no less, meant hearing a lot about Satanism and demonic possession. And it's not just the violence and gore of these movies that disturb me, but when I've had the misfortune of watching, say, a movie like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, it's the voice that gets to the core of my terror. The possession of the voice to be made to sound demonic or otherworldly, that's what fills me with dread. You see, the voice is an incredibly effective way by which the actor or filmmaker communicates who the character is. And there are some actors who speak of their craft in terms of possession, of, of being possessed by the character. And acting is, by its very nature, a transformative and interpretive art. The actor takes the written word and brings it to life. But not all interpretations or interpreters are created equal. Take, for example, the performance of Heath Ledger in the role of Enos Del Mar in Brokeback Mountain. Okay, so bear in mind that at the time, Heath was known for lighter fare like The Knight's Tale and Ten Things I Hate About You. There wasn't much in his filmography to indicate that he could even play a role like this. He was also an Aussie actor playing American, which would require dialect work. This is the character description from the script. Enos Del Mar, not yet 20, but nonetheless compelling, not light or frivolous in disposition, appearance or manner, a high school country boy with no prospects, rough-mannered, rough-spoken, inured to the stoic life. Now, there's nothing in that description that is quote-unquote actable. It's, it's very literary, very flowery and poetic, but tough to act. So most actors will respond to the descriptors, rough-mannered and rough-spoken. I wasn't in the room for the audition process, but I'm sure the casting director, A.V. Kaufman, saw thousands of actors who walked in with big Texas drawls, wearing their best faux Western gear, all playing what they thought was a cowboy. But what Heath does with the character goes beyond just a simple dialect or simple characterization. Go back and watch. When you watch Enos speak, it's as if he has lockjaw. It's like the words can barely sneak out through his tight-lipped mouth, only opening to breathe and not much else. And in that character choice, we see a man so shut down, unable to express anything but the most perfunctory thoughts, a man trapped in his own body and dysfunction, it is the smallest, most delicate choice that tells us everything about who that character is. That's what separated Heath from the horde who simply walked in and played the cowboy. And that makes for killer casting. Hello and welcome to Killer Casting. I am Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, California. I'm probably best known for casting the long-running show Criminal Minds. And with me today are my two sexy beast co-hosts, Mr. Brian Allen Hill. Say hello to the nice people. Oi, oi, oi. Hello, hello. <laughs> my other sexy beast, please do your best Texas drawl, Dean Laffin. Y'all, I'll try and give this a, a, a fair shake of the <laughs> fair shake of the beef stick. I don't know. I'm just gonna riff on this. Uh, don't know if I can maintain this accent all the way through the pod, but I'm gonna give it a red hot go. Oh, good lord! I love it. I love it. I didn't even know what state that was. It's probably not Texas. It's probably, I don't know Alaska or something. But good. nonetheless, damn good. <laughs> all right, beasts. We're here to talk about the incredible FX show. <laughs> 
that you can catch on Hulu called Mr. In Between. And we didn't talk about the title of the show. So how would you define Mr. In Between, Mr. Brian Allen Hill? I have to say, when I saw the title, The PP Guy, I didn't know oh, exactly... The, the title of the show, Mr. In Between. Oh, the title of the show. Okay, yeah. so here are my thoughts on the title of the show. I actually yeah. had to look it up. I wanted to be really clear on what it meant. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to me. It's like that he's in between these two worlds, the family and girlfriend and daughter, and then this seedy underbelly. I think, Dean, earlier you mentioned the word underbelly. And to me, yep. this world, it, it evokes, as I'm watching the show, I think of early Guy Ritchie, Lockstock Two Smoking Barrels, or Snatch, or Cassavetes with Killing a, a Chinese Bookie, or it's Bukowski's LA, or Mammoth Chicago. There's this world that exists that we just don't see in light of day. And he is navigating that underbelly with this, I've got to pick up my daughter and take her to school. Mm -hmm. And the conflict that creates, it's not a moral conflict that he feels about the work that he does. It is the conflict of being astride and having a foot in both of these diametrically opposed worlds that is just remarkable. Brian, you've just, this illustrates the difference between me and you and Lisa together. You've just given a very erudite and very learned breakdown of how the character exists between these two worlds of hitman and loving father. Can I tell you, when I first saw the trailer and I looked at the title of Mr. In Between, I said to my wife, how brilliant, how subtle and funny is the title of this? She says, what do you mean? I go, it's from that song. Accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. No, 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 no. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. I just went, oh, that's what it is. Oh, it's don't mess with Mr. Oh, in Between. And I went, oh, that's brilliant. And then uh, you just told me what it's probably really about. And I'm like, well, no, I oh, uh, that's. No, I, I think it's absolutely both. I thought it was just, he's the, Mr. In Between just means he's the guy. He's not the boss, he's the guy between the boss and the rest of the world who gets all the shit done. He doesn't right. even he doesn't have a name. He's just the guy who's between it all, who, I, I don't know. I just thought it was just one of these sort of laconic. Well, there you go. There's a challenge. We're, we're going to have to get Scott on the show and, oh, and, and no. pin him on that one and say, but Scott see, and Nash, the, where'd this come from? that's the genius of it. We, each of us bring to it a, three different sets of eyes, three different points of views. And Mr. In-Between resonates deeply in three different ways. It's, it's a genius. So we're going to bash through episodes two and three kind of, more quickly than we did with episode one, because there's less to establish. But something about episode two, and I think looking back, it's one of my favorite episodes. It really escalates what his job is, right? Now we're really into it, into the true violence that takes him to completely separate from his humanity to do this job. The scene opens on this suburban family and the father's going out for a run. One thing leads to another and this dad winds up in Ray's trunk because done something bad to Freddie. And so it's Ray's job to eliminate him. And he takes this guy out into the bush. Would you call that the bush, Dean? Uh, Yeah, it's not the outback. That would be way inland. But yeah, there's plenty of bush around Melbourne and Sydney. That's bush. You got it. 
So he drives him out to the bush and boy, straight out of Goodfellas, he makes him <laughs> dig his own grave, begging for his life while Ray's got a gun in him and is, you know, preparing to execute him. And the guy is just begging, will you please tell my family? And Ray's just, nope, I'm not telling your family anything. He's just completely perfunctory in this job. Anything you want to say about this scene? Again, the thing that I keep coming back to is this just decisive, cold, efficient. He's a man of action. And this manifests in the next episode. He's not a talky guy. Talking is a waste of time. It's all about action. And he does his job and he's just very efficient at it. There's something that makes him a throwback. And I'll talk about that, I think, more in the next episode when we get into the kind of anger management thing. The scene just illustrates to him, as as you said, Lisa, there's the guy, Ray's been paid to do a job. He's got a contract and he's not interested in what the guy has to say. He's not angry. He's not upset. It's just, mate, you've got to dig the hole. It's just what he does and he's going to finish and go back home and call Britt. Have a good night's sleep and see his daughter. He's in between. Yeah. Yeah. So you see him immediately juxtaposed with Britt and they're hanging out. We've already talked about this Santa Claus real, real conversation. It's great. And ding dong, he's got company. And what's happening is that social services has been notified about his encounter, (laughs) kicking the shit out of that one guy. And now he's got to go to anger management. And one really significant thing happens is that Ray goes and talks to Freddie and says, yeah, I killed the guy. And Freddie's, oh, darn, you know what? That was the wrong guy. That guy actually didn't do anything wrong. We really didn't need to kill him. Oh, and he just shrugs it off. And Ray doesn't have a huge... Oh my God, I killed. There was all kind of no reaction to that. You can see him later. He's, you see him smoking at night, looking at the city and then tossing and turning, but there's no inner monologue. There's no voiceover saying, I really am mad that I, you know, whatever. No, but that's a moment where he gives him the Ray smile. Mm. And all he says is next time, make sure you get it right. Mm-hmm. Or make sure he is, make sure it yeah. is the right guy. It is very like the menace of it is terrifying. And then something very unexpected happens. At least I didn't expect it. You're back at the suburban home with the family from the very beginning of the scene, and the wife is getting groceries. And Ray just comes up to her real quick, hands her an envelope of money, and says, Luke said to give this to you if anything ever happened to me, and takes off. So you realize that even though he was cold and calculating when he was executing her husband, he does have a conscience. He does have guilt and he's giving this woman money and at least something so she knows that, you know. Well, it's his code. Again, it's his code. He lives by a very specific code that helps him make sense of the world and helps him do his job and live in the world. It's the ladybug is what it is. He's atoning for Freddie's mistake and his mistake to the wife. That's all he can do because the yep. guy's gone. So there's yep. nothing he can do about that. But he, he can do what he can. And as you say, now in his in his world at least, he's, that's as much as I can do, to put it right. And then comes the next test of his code, now that you mention it. So Ray goes to the hospital to see his best buddy, Gaz, Gary. Did, they, did everybody call Gary Gaz? Is that like a typical nickname for Gary? Australians love to shorten everything. We're so lazy. We can't <laughs> even say Thomas, it's Tom, Gary, even Gary, right? That's four letters. No, that's one letter too many. We're going to take the R and make it a Z. Gaz. 
or Gaza. I love it. I love it. So Gaz, his friend, who is quite a character in his own right, but he's in bad shape. He's in an induced coma in the hospital. The wife's in tears. The wife's brother tries to tell Ray what happened, saying that they were doing a gun deal and they were jumped and Gaz got bashed. And Ray's just watching him explain this story. And he's just not buying it, right? No, again, it's talky. You know what I mean? And none of it is lining up. Miss Vasily says he got three shots in. And so Ray takes a look at his hands to see, like, where's the scrapes? If you hit somebody, your hand's going to get messed up. Yeah, where's but that? I like that I like that he doesn't bring it up in the hospital when he looks right. at his hands. He just looks at right. his hands and goes, yeah, okay, see you later. Uh, and off he goes. So he's, he goes now he knows, and now he's going to go and do his business. But right. it's a very efficient scene with him and Vasily. Yeah. He asks him a couple questions, and he knows straight off that he's lying. There's no extraneous bullshit that he goes through. It's just, okay, I've established you're a liar and I'll see you later. Right. And he's and, and of course, Ray's got very few friends, right? He has got very yeah. few friends. And Gaz is one of his army buddies. The, they hint or mention just once that they, they fought together in the Middle East. So they were clearly Australian soldiers fighting mm-hmm. in the Middle East. And so their bond is back from that, which is where Ray and Gaz obtained their weapons skills because there are very few weapons in Australia. Like the handguns are unknown. I don't know anybody in my wide circle of friends. I don't know anyone that owns a handgun. Never seen really? one in real life. Really? And the only people, yeah, never. The only people that I've seen with guns are farmers. That's it. They've got rifles. Mm-hmm. But to get that expertise with handguns and later on machine, famously machine guns, that, that's yeah. where they came from. So that's, he's the, really the only close friend. And since they bashed him and disrespected Gaz, that's the same as the, those morons knocking Chica. It's, oh, okay, i yeah, got to respond. Yeah, this so will not stand, Brian. Yeah, exactly. His code, his code will not stand for his yeah. best friend to be bashed by these losers. No, they'll walk all over us. Time to put this right. And uh, just so long story short, Ray goes over to Vasily's house and punches him a couple times in the face and says, this is what a fist looks like when you hit somebody. (laughs) So he knows that he's lying and he makes Vasily tell him who really did this to Gaz. He finds out and he goes and takes his revenge. We don't know if he kills these three guys. No, we do. No, yeah, he just bashes them. And that's, I, I just thought, okay, they put Gaz in a coma, but they didn't kill him. Now, right. he kills at the drop of a hat if he's paid for, right, mm-hmm. or, or if he's attacked. But consistent with his character, the response to these guys was proportional. He didn't go out Hollywood-style glocking them, John Wick right. or something for killing his dog. It was like, no, you bash my mate, I'm going to bash you. He's contained. And this is the only is, point this- that I can remember in the episode or in the show so far that you have an underscore of music because he's going into a club to get... Oh, did I steal your thunder? Yeah. So, yeah, that's, so there's, uh, there's music that's, in the club. It's not a steal. Know. It's a lead-in, Lisa. It's a lead-in for Brian. Pounding music well, in the club, and it's just the best. It's the only time the camera takes a position. So he's bashed the guy in the bathroom, and that's our only stylized shot. I think in any of the episodes, it's slow mm-hmm. motion him walking out of the mm-hmm. club. And the camera's attaching something to that moment. Whereas we've never had that. I mean, it's an interesting choice. The, real quick, in episode one, Dean, you mentioned it, when he's got the guy, the accountant, the pencil pusher, and he says, I'm going to go to your house and make you feel sorry, blah, 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 blah. And then in this scene, when he's got the knife, he, he's got the knife with Vasily and he says, I'm going to cut your dick off. You're going to walk around with the stub. The, the thing with Scott as an actor in both of those moments 
is that I absolutely believe that character is going to do that. He's not making an idle threat. I'll give you your money, okay? Um, I don't want any money. What do you mean? Well, it's not my job to collect money. It's his job. What's your job? My job is to make you sorry you didn't pay when you had the chance. Mr. Between's about a guy who's stuck between two worlds. He's a criminal. He has a girlfriend. He has an ex-wife. He has a daughter. He's in a bit of a tough situation because he can't really tell them what he does for a living. That's a lot of the show, is him trying to stop these two worlds from colliding with each other. Tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Ray. I'm 40. Got a kid. Divorced. Work security. He's basically a man for hire. He does hitman work, debt collecting. Ray is probably a bit smarter than your average criminal. Definitely has quite a bit of rage, but has a great ability to control it. Whoa! Hey, Jesus, man. Why don't you watch where you're going, eh? What was that? You heard what I said. The more things you can relate to with this character, the more accessible it is, no matter what his job is. He has a good moral centre. It's just a little left of centre for everyone else. Do you think that you've got an anger problem? And I think that a lot of times in kind of Hollywood storytelling, you get a lot of posturing, you get a lot of chest beating, kind of pronouncing blah, blah, blah. And it's all just acting the shit out of something. Whereas with him, the quiet certainty of his own ability and making a decision, I absolutely believe. And that's what encourages the character opposite him to make the decisions to give him what he wants. You use that phrase in reviewing the first step, the banality of evil. And when he yeah. underplays that stuff, he's just leaning in the doorway and the guy's nervous because he's like, hang on, what do you mean you're not here to collect the money? And, and Scott's so matter of fact and just so, you know, he's just so relaxed and just saying it, it's the future. He's telling him the future. You yeah. don't pay. I'm and, going to be there. And this, and, is, it's- and this is the thing. So in this town, so when I teach and, and Lisa, you can speak to this as well. So often people, if they get a dramatic scene, that's how they think of it. And so they want to demonstrate their training as opposed to play the scene in a meaningful way that makes sense for the given circumstance and the relationship and who this person is. So it becomes about this kind of acting exercise. And it's just, Jesus, would you like, just take it down like fucking 10 notches, would you? Because to me, the greatest power is in stillness. And that's something that actors, it's very hard for them to recognize that because they lack so much power in their own lives as performers because they're hustling for work. So they don't understand what stillness is and the thing that Scott does. And it's because he is not a trained actor, I believe. He is counting on a life of experience and understanding this character and probably cultural touchstones that he's grabbed onto and incorporated into this thing. And he's playing at being a hitman. And it is the most meaningful game of pretend that an actor can play. And I think that's what he's doing. And he's in stillness and in power. And that's what makes the character really so compelling. Okay, so uh, this episode two, of course, is called Unicorns Know Everyone's Name. And that's uh, predicated on a classic scene between 
Uh, and, and Lisa mentioned it uh, earlier as well in the previous ep that Chica, his daughter, pins him about Father Christmas. And then that leads in uh, whether he's real or not. And of course, Ray feels like he shouldn't be lying to his daughter. So there ensues some uh, <laughs> learning curve for Chica about how presents arrive under the tree. Oh, and unicorns, an ongoing recurring theme for Chica and in the show. But reading an interview, apparently that was lifted entirely from a real-life conversation between Nash and between Chica. So once again, just one of those examples of real life bleeding over into the show and leveraging what you've got. It probably was a story, Lisa, that that Nash would have told Scott one day. He's come over for a beer. He's gone, I wouldn't believe what Chica said to me today. Checked out as a parent, I remember you have two, I've had these conversations and it's just a Mm -hmm. trend. The cool thing about the character is that Ray, he throws the Easter Bunny under the bus. He throws the Tooth Fairy under the bus, but unicorns, Yes, he cannot take that away from her. So he says, yes, there are unicorns and I've seen one. And the way he tells the story, it's just such genius. It's like pulling just the right amount of details. It's the mammoth in writing in restaurants. It's effortless. It's fantastic. So in episode three, this is an episode all about consequences because there are consequences to telling that story to Brit. And the consequences are his ex-wife is like, did you really tell her that Jesus doesn't exist because we're Christians? I love what I loved about it is that she's not a raving bitch. They just have this weary understanding of each other. And what is not said is more important than what is said, which is something I love. There's respect for her in this show. And she also doesn't look like she's damaged from being married to him. Different casting might have cast a, a more rough around the edges, a hard drinking, hard smoking woman who'd been with him. But I don't know. I think it, it gave this character a lot of respect and I really like that. But the other consequences is that Ray has to enter an anger management group for beating up the ice cream guy. And again, the code, Brian, you're so right. He comes into this circle of guys and uh, Brian, what happens in this circle of guys? So basically, he has to introduce himself and say a little bit about him, his background, and why he's there. And as they go around the room, all of these various guys are married on the verge of divorce because of their anger issues, where it comes out that they take out their anger on their wife and their kids or their wives. And at one point, Ray just starts chuckling to himself and says that he's he feels like he should be in a different class because he bashed somebody who deserved it. He didn't doesn't bash wife or his kids. He really looks down on these guys and gets everybody riled up. You know what I mean? And because he takes a very hard stance about them. And Dean, my co-host Laura on Real Crime Profile would be like, it's just a matter of time until he's bashing his daughter and his wife because these things don't exist in a vacuum. This kind of anger will eventually percolate. And that's what the counselor is trying to get at is you think you're so different, but I don't think you are. And Lisa, you can draw a direct line from that statement you just made to a very pivotal scene in series two with his girlfriend, Ellie, which we'll say no more about. And that is, you are so on point. And I found, and Brian, you're right, Ray feels, Ray's character feels dirty to be there. I don't belong down here with in the sewer with these guys. I don't bash my wife and kids. He doesn't believe he has a, an anger management problem or an anger problem because he doesn't explode into unusual violence. It's a job. Or, or it's by his code responding to the way that they dissed Brit. 
the guys with the ice cream. But what a classic character that facilitator is, the guy that's chairing. He's just, from the second I saw him, I'm like, okay, he's got the unbuttoned collar shirt. He's got the crew neck over the top. He's got the the chinos. He's got the man bun going. And I already loved him as a, look, not a slimy character, but just a, he's such a cliche of a cliche. And then just the other day, I'm like, oh, who is this guy? I looked him up. Did you guys realize who he is? Mm Mm-mm. No. It's it's David Michaud. David Michaud, the writer of the movie Animal Kingdom and the writer, yeah, and so he's the writer and director of uh, War Machine starring Brad Pitt. It is a co-founder with Nash and, and Joel in oh, Blue Tongue, yeah. the production house that does this. So I didn't even realise who he was. So that was well, funny, but he's, he's a classic character. Well, and I will say two things. That scene really typified, they really captured the tone and mood of so many 12-step groups. It's not this bombastic thing. It's these kind of quiet, shame-filled rooms at times that they managed to tap into that energy. But again, what I mentioned in about episode two, Ray is a throwback in that talk is a waste of time. So being in this round circle with a group of guys talking about their feelings, mm-hmm. is a, he's a man of action. Mm-hmm. Like action is everything. Talk is cheap. and his words aren't wasted. And so I, I can see how he's butting up and embracing against this call to talk about your feelings. Oh, yeah. It's a total anathema to him. It. It's the last thing he wants to do, but he has to do it to stay out of prison. If he goes to prison, he doesn't see Brit, and it's, so it's a price he has to pay. But, boy, yeah. he hates paying it, doesn't he? Is everything okay, Ray? I think I'm in the wrong room. What makes you say that? Well, the person I bashed was a bloke, not a child or a woman. What's your point? Well, no offence, but I don't really want to sit here with a bunch of fucking wife bashers and child beaters, you know what I mean? The fuck did you say? Look, if you can't take this seriously, then I'll be recommending jail time instead. Okay, do you want to do jail time? Not particularly, no. Well, then I expect you to behave yourself. If you're going to cause trouble, then we'll have to come to some other arrangement. And Dean, would you say that in Australia, this is even a bigger obstacle for men to go into these kind of circles? Look, we're in the very crunchy granola Los Angeles where everybody has a self-help book and everything. And that we're very used to introspection. We're very used to catharsis. We're very used to confessionals and stuff like that. It, I would imagine maybe it's a little bit different in Australia. Yeah. As you say, obviously, California's be different. You could go to – you could sample a bunch of guys in Nebraska or somewhere classically conservative and struggle to get stuff out of them the same. But, yeah, I, I think there's a, there is a certain ethos and a, there's a classical Australian male that very much bottles stuff up. It's not about being overtly macho, but I think a lot of men in Australia feel that if they've got problems, they need to deal with them themselves. And they have, and they struggle to reveal themselves to either other men, or, or even wives and stuff. They find it hard to talk. I think that's a, 
it's a cliche, but it's based on the truth. Absolutely. I was going to say, Brian, you don't know this, but Dean does that. We recently had a guest on Real Crime Profile, Jess Hill, who spent the last four mm. years chronicling the massive domestic abuse and violence problems in Australia. And because mm. boys are just taught, don't cry, don't show your feelings, man up. Anyway, go ahead, Brian. That's how I was raised. Yeah. In Texas, where I grew up in the Midwest, I think it's true of a certain generation and moved backwards. So like generation X and moved back, I think the way we were raised, that's by and large, like I had to come to self-help or self-actualization or those tools much later in life. Whereas generations now, generation Y and Z and millennials, they have been brought up with this notion of being in touch with your feelings and being able to communicate mm. and tell people what you need. There is a stark contrast. That's why this scene resonated. It's a really short scene. It's not, mm -hmm. there's not a lot that happens, but it does say something about and who white males, whatever mm. that means. Mm. But I think it does in a really authentic fashion demonstrate how difficult it is for men to like process emotions without resorting to violence mm -hmm. and establishing their dominance through violence. So I don't want to give away the end of this episode, the comedy of errors that ensues at a certain point that <laughs> the most Guy Ritchie of scenes. Oh, oh isn't it? Yeah. Yes. By, by, by the way, we should mention that the episode is called uh, Captain Obvious. Is that a phrase that you guys have in America? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, you do? Okay. Yeah. So that you understand the context. Okay, good. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, let me just say, so we've talked, we talked a lot about Bruce in episode one, episode three, he breaks my heart. He yeah. breaks my heart in this. And this is where I wrote down that I really wanted to know more of his backstory. I really want to, to know his background, where he came from, what his upbringing is, because he and Ray don't favor each other at all. Yeah. There was no attempt to pair them up in any way. Physically or what? Yeah. Physically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean hugging and that sort of thing? No, as no, brothers, like, like a, like a yeah, physical yeah, yeah. resemblance. Yeah. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Yes, right. But, right. but also, I think neither of them is comfortable with that. You can see that there's real love between them, but it's all constrained. It's all totally bottled up, even though you can see it's there. No, but it's a sweet scene because um, Brittany paints Bruce's yes. nails and then Ray paints her nails and then Bruce takes a fall and he's so frustrated with his body. And my friend... Yeah. I know this very well from my friend who had cerebral palsy. You're just so frustrated because you're just trapped in this body. Inside, you're absolutely fine. And outside, you can't go grab a cup of tea. And so you can see that even in just these couple of episodes, he's declined. And this actor is so brilliant at gauging the decline by just yep. ticking it down. And just two relationships I want to comment on before we wrap this up is Newbie Nick, the, the brash, young enforcer who was, you know, all hot to trot. They've developed a little bit of rapport, he and Ray, and it's very sweet to see. He doesn't quite take him under his wing, but he's he definitely tolerates his presence and they play pool together and Nick steals some jewelry for Ray to give to his girlfriend. And it's just a nice, I don't know, it's just a nice little relationship that Nick is getting closer to Ray. And as Dean, you've said, Ray doesn't have a lot of confidants and people around him. It's like Gaz and... That's no, that's it, really, outside yeah. of Gaz. He's friends with Freddie, but that's Freddie's his boss slash, you know, a free, freelance agent to get him jobs. But yeah, Gaz is really the only one that he trusts. And in fact, Gaz is the only character in this that Ray has 
any tolerance and patience for. If you screw up with Ray, you're done. But how many times does Gaz get him in the shit and then Gaz goes, oh, thanks, mate, I owe you one, and you just see Ray go, yeah, I'll, I'll put it on the list. So he's got this allowance that nobody else gets a free pass like Gaz does. The other, and the other relationship that we see just ticking along is Ali, his relationship yeah. with Ali where they go shopping in the lingerie section of a store, which is so cringy for a lot of guys. <laughs> their girlfriends but it's so funny to see him there with her but it's the restraint that the producers and writers show there aren't any big sex scenes or any big fights or any big like there isn't just the typical relationship pablum it's just it's a slow burn it's a slow burn episode to episode and i think (laughs) that's what makes it even more stressful in Mm -hmm. a way for me i find it very difficult to watch atlanta atlanta is a brilliant show but I have this sense of foreboding about the characters and that something's going to happen to them, that it makes it difficult for me to watch that show. And I have the same kind of feeling-ish about Mr. In-Between because he does seem to be on the knife's edge of violence at every moment. You just don't know what's going to happen because it happens in this slow burn fashion. It just continues to raise the stakes with each episode. The interesting thing about that, Brian, I think is that you're right, but he's not a volcano waiting to explode, right? He's not. So let's say Tommy out of Goodfellas. You could just say something, right? And you're done. He's that. He'll just go off at the, but with Ray, he's calm, but he could walk around the corner like he did. And those dickheads just bump into him and he's not looking for trouble. He's, On a scale of one to 10 in terms of anger, he's zero. But he can go from zero to 10 if he has to. One point I did want to make, Gaz, as you said, features, he grows throughout the entire two series. But I thought it was hilarious, the writing, and just credit to Scott, there's a scene at the end of the movie, Lisa, you foreshadowed it before, but we're not going to do a plot spoiler. But Vasily confronts Gaz at one point, and he bursts through the house, and he's saying... Uh, in his thickly accented sort of English with a Russian accent, he's saying, safe, is safe. And Gaz is like, what? The safe? You want a safe? And then they go off on a marathon man nod. Did you see that? He's going, is it safe? Is it is, is what safe? Is it yeah. is it safe? And it's when Olivier is drilling the tooth out of Hoffman in the marathon man saying, is it safe? He wants his diamonds. And I'm sure that's just that, that little sequence was just stretched out to make it funny. And that's just some of the little nuggets that Scott throws in around the drama and the violence. I just thought that was brilliant. I laughed my ass off at that, that scene. I thought it was just like a Abbott and Costello who's on first. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That was, that was so Tarantino-esque, wasn't it, that scene? It's total yeah, Tarantino. I, I don't even want to spoil it for anybody. But before we wrap up, we're not going to talk about episode four. There are a couple things that you really, the, the show doesn't try to apologize for Ray and his violence and his way of life, but you do get to see his POV. He protects Allie in this little situation. And she's like, did you really have to escalate it? And he just explains to her that, If he had waited, if he had tried to just talk to the guy, that gives the guy's friend to come out of the car and then he's got two people to deal with. And what I'm saying is that's an example of that he's seeing the situation constantly in survival mode. He's weighing the scales. He's clocking the exits. He's clocking what's going on. And in that way, Brian, I think there is a constant tension to that. There's Mm -hmm. He's not a volcano, but he's like on a wire. He's constantly on a, a third rail. As he says, the world is full of assholes. And Ray, as you said, Dean, you know why? Because people let them get away with it. There are no consequences. Bingo. You know? Yeah. That's his, that is his code. 
Yeah, his mantra. Yeah, I hope that we have inspired people <laughs> to come and watch this amazing little show and push it forward into the world. It was not on my radar whatsoever until Dean told me about it. And I'm so glad you did. And I just really want to champion shows like this that take a chance on an unknown actor and let him fly. And who knows? I've watched interviews with Scott Ryan. I don't know if he'll ever do another role again, if this is the only thing he can do, or if there are many different versions of Ray that he can play. But I'm so glad that he was allowed to bring this just mesmerizing character to life. Again, I'd just like to encourage people, if you haven't watched the series, but you like what you hear, it's not hard to catch up. They're only 26-minute eps, so it won't take you long to actually get ahead of us. I think it's worth saying kudos to FX as a network for bringing this to market. And I think that FX is one of the few networks that's consistently bringing really great and edgy work. There's going to be interference from any network, just my own experience in, in a small way. But I think by and large, FX does a really fantastic job of letting the storytellers tell their stories. And they've made a good chunk of money from doing that. Well, thanks, you guys, for breaking this down with me. It's been so great to obsess about it with you. And wow, I can't wait to see what the next thing we talk about is, the next thing that deserves our undivided attention. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.